0: You are listening to episode 24 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Steven Warboys.
1: Witness history at Roland Garros where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now,
0: here's your host, Mirban
1: Iranshad. Hey
0: everybody, Mirban here, and welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. I really appreciate all you guys tuning in today, and I think today is going to be a pretty interesting episode for you guys to listen to, because we've got Stephen Warboys, who is a former ATP pro and former number one ranked junior in the world, and he uh, reflects on tennis back in the day, so... Uh, Steven played a ton of legends uh, back when he was playing on tour. He played Connors, Vilas, uh, Armitage, uh, and you know a bunch of other players that uh, he's going to talk about on the show. And uh, it's just interesting to get a perspective from Steven on how the game was played back then and the differences between the game now and before. And uh, Steven is also a... Radio Personality, he uh, commentates on uh, TSN, I believe, on the International Sports Report radio show. And so it's just a really cool guy. Uh, really enjoyed talking with him and uh, you know getting his thoughts on the pro game and uh, some of his favorite pros as well. So uh, yeah, I just hope you guys really enjoy the interview today. Um, super cool to talk to Steven, and uh, without further ado, here is my interview with Stephen Warboys. Hey everybody, we're here with Stephen Warboys, who is the head tennis professional at the Toronto Cricket Skating and Curling Club. He is also a commentator uh, for the International Sports Report radio show, and he has actually uh, has been ranked as high as 73 in the world on the ATP Tour, and Stephen is a former number one ranked junior in the world as well. Stephen got to the junior finals of Wimbledon, And he also uh, got to play some amazing, uh, legendary players like Jimmy Connors, uh, Guillermo Vilas, and uh, Stephen Armitrash. Stephen, I just uh, really appreciate you being on the show, and I want to welcome you uh, to the podcast.
2: Uh, It's a pleasure, and I'm uh, very happy to be talking tennis with you.
0: Thanks so much, Stephen. So, I just want to start, uh, you know, with the beginning of your tennis career. So, uh, where did you grow up?
2: Grew up in uh, in London, England. Uh, played a lot of tennis uh, there on on grass courts and obviously indoors. With the weather in England, uh, started playing pretty early on in life too. I had a racket in my hand by the time I was three. But I spent my early years in London.
0: Fantastic. And uh, you know, how did you get your start? Uh, did anyone in particular influence you to start playing the game, or did you just pick up a racket randomly and trot on the court? <laughs>
2: Uh, No, there's nothing random about it. Uh, Both uh, my mother and father played. My father was a pretty good player. He qualified for Wimbledon uh, before the Second World War and then qualified again afterwards, after obviously a break of a few years. And he was not a young man when he qualified. I think he was probably 36 when he qualified the first time and probably 42 the second. And he got there the hard way. Uh, He was not a... Top-ranked player at England necessarily at that time, but he was good enough, uh, good enough to play the singles at Wimbledon. He started so late. Uh, obviously, uh, when you get that good at that stage of your life, you can see how late he started uh, being 36 playing at Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. He wanted to make sure uh, with me that he started as early as possible, and he was my formative coach. Uh, and I had a few other coaches a little later on, but he's my formative coach. So I was about 14 or 15.
0: Uh, that's truly fantastic to have a father to uh, reach as high as a level as that so he could coach you and, and advise you into how you could grow into that um, elite level of the sport. Um, and so I'm sure your father was also an idol of yours, but did you have any um, other tennis idols growing up?
2: I, I did, and uh, they would have been primarily probably British players at that time in my sort of early teens. Uh, I used to go to watch some Davis Cup matches at Wimbledon, and always uh, watch very closely players like uh, Bobby Wilson, uh, Sangster, uh, Mark Cox, Roger Taylor, a little bit later on. Now, some of those earlier names, uh, Mike Sangster, for instance, was a great player, great basketball player, but a lot of your listeners might not have heard of a player from that, that time going back. Um, my adults, when I really... I wouldn't say so much by idols, but the players that I admired tremendously once they started to play professional tennis in my mid to late teens were really the players uh, like Ilyna Stasi, Bion Borg, who I was quite friendly with, Jimmy Carnes. and mm-hmm. that, that was really my era, although they were all just a little older than I was.
0: Uh, Certainly legends uh, of the sport. And uh, going back to your father, uh, I'm just curious, you know, given that he reached uh, such a high level, I'm curious, uh, you know, what kind of tennis dad was he as far as, you know, was he more on the tough side or relaxed, you know, when you're playing?
2: He was uh, he was pretty tough, but he'd be pretty tense when he watched me play. Um, he was probably a little ahead of his time because he, uh, in those days, uh, we're talking in the early 1950s or late 1950s when I was very young, uh, people weren't devoting quite the time to uh, getting their children to play sports, particularly with the objective of having them play at a professional level. My father had that idea, I think, very early on. Mm-hmm. And went about it in a very uh, sort of complete way. He he covered a lot of bases very early on, and he really had me on a full program, which at times wasn't always fun. I have to admit, but he was uh, he was pretty tough.
0: Oh, I mean that's great. It helped you reach you know a great level. And I'm also curious. Did you ever feel um you know a lot of pressure to become a great player, uh, given that your father was just uh, such an excellent player himself?
2: Yeah, I think so, and not so much maybe about who's playing standard, but I guess really about the way he went about it. It was uh, very well publicized in England that I was almost like, I guess, a little bit of an experiment into the time and effort he put in to sort of helping me with my tennis. And then, of course, more so when you start to win as a junior. Uh, then the pressure starts to build because I won tournaments very early on mm-hmm. and started winning some national championships and even some senior events in my mid-teens. So there, then now the pressure starts to build, but it's, of course, more put on you by yourself than anything else, right? But the expectations were fairly high.
0: Right. And um, I'm curious if you could take us back to your very first tournament experience, kind of describe that, how it was like.
2: Oh, that is interesting. Uh, the, fir- <laughs> the first time I truly remember, uh, probably was about six or seven, uh, very, very young. I played at a fairly big tournament. It was played across England, actually, in matches. I played in qualifying stages at different areas. It was probably under 12 in you know, there, maybe even you know, under 14 in you know. there. And I remember a young man we actually had a tennis court at the house, we had a grass court a tennis court at the house yeah. and a young man showed up uh, to play this match and agreed to rather than playing at the club, he agreed to come to the house and play on the grass. And he was a tremendous young man, but he wasn't much of a much of a tennis player and at not being quite so kind to of him, he struggled a little bit with, with, with many things. But actually we over the years we became friends and uh, I want to tell you the school when I played him but we actually became mm-hmm. friends, and he became a very proficient tennis player and a very successful businessman too. So it it started a friendship that match that I probably remember more than anything else in my career. Started a friendship that was uh, kind of special.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I mean, uh, tennis is just such a great sport uh, for all the wonderful people you meet and the connections you make, and they, you know, in a lot of cases can help you up, uh, help you out la- uh, later in life. So that's fantastic. It does. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I'm just curious also, what part of your junior career uh, did you feel y- that you experienced the greatest improvement and uh, how did that happen?
2: Uh, I guess fairly early on I uh, I sort of started to grow into my body and grow into my game a little bit. Eventually I ended up sort of playing, and in those days of course we played almost primarily a lot faster than what the professionals are playing out there today. Um, so I started to grow into my body a little bit by the time I was 14 or 15, I was I was pretty tall. I, I like to serve and volley. That was, by nature, my game, to mm-hmm. attack. And at that stage, I started to sort of feel comfortable with what I was doing. Although, of course, struggled mightily, particularly early on, playing on slower court surfaces, particularly on clay. Um, mm-hmm. That came a little bit later, that confidence, to play sort of reasonably well on clay. But My game was primarily an attacking game. So about the age of 14 or 15, I started to feel that I... I had the game to compete at a sort of a higher level.
0: That's fantastic. And uh, would you say that you had uh, a big serve, or was it more of a that you placed it very well, allowing you to serve in volley, or was it uh, both?
2: No, I had a I had a big serve. I had a big first serve. I could hit the kick. I could hit the slice, and that was really, I guess, partly what I was talking about there about growing into into my body, being able to hit all those serves too. You had to have a little bit of height some strength, and uh, sort of in my mid-teens, I really started to feel that I could do that. By the time I first qualified for Wimbledon I was 16, I, I had pretty good control over my serve, and I would say it was so close to being a world-class men's serve at that time. It was a very important part of my game. I volleyed well, obviously. I had a forehand, which was normal. In those years, my backhand was a little suspect for a world-class player, and I always had to work on that very hard.
0: Uh, did you have a one-hander, Stephen, or was it a two-hander?
2: Yeah, I, I was a one-hander. And, and for those of you listeners that are interested in, in the technical parts of tennis course, which, which we are, I was a mm-hmm. continental grip player, so I just played mm-hmm. off a of one-grip, which was common in those days. That You didn't even have the eastern forehand and backhand grips, uh, and definitely nothing like the western grips you see today, which obviously is so strong and so pronounced. So I played my professional grip basically off the continental grip. Which really helped with the serve of volley and allowed me to do a lot of different things with the racket, but became a little bit of a liability on, on the backhand for me. I
0: am mm-hmm. also uh, just curious. This is, a, you know, a long time ago, obviously, um, but do you happen to remember the model of racket and strings that you used, you know, at any point in time between your junior oh. career and pro? <laughs> <laughs> you
2: better believe I do. Oh, do you remember okay. those, when you play tennis for a living? You- yeah. Uh, professionally. You remember all the details. I played with the Diamond Max player for many years. It was obviously mm-hmm. a big racket in England and around the world. Slightly modified, uh, half-inch shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that you could do that much to the wood rackets, but uh, it was very specific about grips and grip shape, uh, tapered grip and half-inch shorter. And, of course, in those days, we are playing with gut in the racket, a natural gut, mm-hmm. uh, which was S primarily, a uh, battle of DS.
0: And so, uh, given that the natural gut was uh, used by all the players, um, was it still as relatively expensive as it was today? Uh, do you remember?
2: Yeah. In fact, I'm not really sure if you do a price comparison from now to back then whether the price is actually that the real price has actually changed that much. It was always expensive mm. and uh, obviously still is today. I think it's probably more expensive when I was playing in the true value of, of pounds or dollars. It was even more expensive. And it was, of course, it was hard. If you're practicing a lot, playing a lot, you're still going through a fair amount of rackets. Although we didn't take on to the court the same amount that they do today, and change change the rackets every six or eight games. But uh, even with four or five rackets uh, going through them fairly regularly, it was an expense. Of course, if you didn't have a sponsor to help, it was uh, it would have been tough.
0: Yeah, and uh, you just mentioned sponsors. Is there a, was there a general range of? Um, you know, uh, what ranking uh, you needed to achieve to to have a sponsor in those days, and is it different from today?
2: Yeah, I, I would say it was different. I think, obviously, the money was really shifted towards the top in those days, both in, in what people were played uh, for guarantees to play, because I, I, I started playing before the year of open tennis. I actually played the first mm. open tennis tournament uh, in Bournemouth, England, but before that, we were playing for guarantees, And, uh, yeah, if you didn't have sponsorship, it was tough. But I would say probably the top 40 to 50 players had a chance of making a reasonable living. Maybe the top 20 or 15 made a a really good living. Now, the sponsorships might go down a little bit bit lower than that, but not that much. Where I was lucky is that I was, fortunately, a world-class junior player and therefore got access to sponsorship at a much younger age. Uh, on the chance that I might be able to continue that on as I became a senior in the professional ranks, so I had sponsors very early on, uh, very early on in my career.
0: Oh, this is wonderful, Stephen. And so, uh, what do you consider uh, your greatest achievement to be as a junior player?
2: Oh, Wow. <laughs> I guess in the under-18s, I won I won all the national titles in England, the indoors, the grass course. I did not win Junior Wimbledon, which has always been one of the greatest regrets of my life. I lost it in the final of Junior Wimbledon, and I also lost in the final of the French Juniors, too, which uh, uh, to me will, will always sting. In those days, we played uh, a major Junior Davis Cup event called the Galea Cup, which I, I'm not sure is played anymore. It's probably defunct. But it was for under 21 players. And basically, it was uh, designed on the same lines as Davis Cup. Four singles matches over five sets and a doubles match uh, in the middle. And uh, that was for European players only. But in those days, of course, a lot of the very strong players were from Europe. So when I played in that, uh, uh, Bjorn Borg was playing. Jose Jose Igueris was playing for Uh. Spain. Corrado Barrazzotti playing for Italy. Anyway, there was an awful lot of strong players uh, at that time playing in that. It was the preeminent uh, event for under 21 players. And I was lucky enough or fortunate enough to be on a team uh, that where England won that event. And at that time and even before then and after then, we had to not had much success at that sort of level. And uh, We actually beat Spain in the final and uh, I won both of my singles matches uh, in five sets, one of which was against Jose Higueroa, because went on to become at least a top-ten clay court player in the world, if not a top-ten player, full stop.
0: Wow, wow, that's really amazing. Um, congratulations on that one.
2: So I finally found out how to play on clay, but believe me, I, I still couldn't really do it week in and week out.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's tough for a certain value. Did you um, end up staying uh, by the baseline, at least for some points, or did you still continue on with oh,
2: your no, that's a good question. I was. I obviously had to modify it, but it was still a flat-out attacking, attacking game. Um, it's funny because I remember an interesting story. I won won the match. My last singles match was actually the fifth. Was the fifth rubber and it was against uh, the other Spanish player, not uh, not Egueris. And I was locked in a huge battle over five sets and finally got up five four three for the match. Uh, the captain was on the course in those days, just like David Cup. And I was up 40-30 on my serve, and I missed my first serve where I was got to serve and volley, and I'd been kind of mixing it up. I'd half serve and volley and half spend the time at the back of the court and try to work my way in. And I suddenly had this sort of flash at that particular moment, why do I serve and volley on the second serve and try to get this match over? <laughs> and the captain told the story for many years he said he said i saw steven serve the second serve and i i looked at the baseline to see where the next shot was and i i couldn't see him the next minute he's up at the net <laughs> and shaking hands so you know you always go to what you feel comfortable with i guess under the greatest pressure ever you can have and that's what i did
0: <laughs> no that's actually wonderful advice and uh could you perhaps give us one tip for, uh, and I know this is not the biggest uh, subsect of players right now, but for serving volleyers who want to succeed on clay, what is one adjustment that you would uh, advise they make?
2: Boy, that's hard. Because uh, you play, particularly on the red clay courts these days, of course, I think everything slowed down a little bit too. So serving a volley, I think, on the clay court is brutal, even for the greatest servers in the game today. But if a club player wants to try it uh, and maybe playing on true, on North American true, it's a little easier to serve and volley I think the big thing is you just can't rely on speed because uh, you're just not going to be at you know, to court sort of thing. Is you you, know, you just got to move the ball around a little bit or get the ball in the body if you are really got to be successful trying to serve and volley occasionally you know sometimes.
0: Yeah, no, that's great advice. I'm curious, you did mention uh, the sponsorships and, and, and such, but Uh, How did life change, if at all, when you became the number one junior in the world?
2: Well, I I picked up more sponsorships. I picked up a clothing company to go with the rackets uh, and some other sort of fairly lucrative deals for for that particular time. Uh, I guess more than anything else, I started getting invitations to play tournaments. I mentioned it before. In those days, we were playing for guarantees. You'd actually Mm -hmm. get paid to show up. Uh, Started receiving more of those and then started to get to travel around the world playing playing for guarantees, nothing like obviously the top five or ten players in the world would get, but enough to make a living and to feel comfortable that you could make a living at the game. Also started to get into some of the tournaments that maybe I hadn't been able to play, Uh, and this is just before the ATP ranking started, so I played right through that when an open tennis started, and then when the ATP ranking took effect as the first official world ranking, there were world rankings before them but of course they were unofficial and maybe mm-hmm. really not quite as accurate as they as they are today
0: mm-hmm. and so now shifting to the, the the pro tour for you uh can you just talk about uh what your career was like on the pro tour and you know the difficulties and uh your successes that you've had
2: yeah well i i guess the big difference and it would have been in that era and that era only but there was always something there's always a a sort of a decision to make, where I would play on a weekly basis for a guaranteed income to show up at a tournament. Obviously, you'd want to play well, because then you get an invite back again the next year, and, and maybe the guarantee would go up, or whether I would chase ATP points uh, with no, no guarantee, no monetary guarantee whatsoever, and mm-hmm. uh, put up a fair amount of money to do so. So the tendency, unfortunately for me, uh, was to stay more in Europe, um, not to always travel where I probably should have traveled to try to improve my ATP ranking. For instance, I never went to Australia, which is a place that not only I think I would have played fairly well because there was a cross tournaments there, but I, I think mm-hmm. I would have enjoyed tremendously. But I always stayed and played in Europe indoors because I knew I could make, uh, make better money there. So I never really got to play probably all the major tournaments. I played the U.S. Open, played one more than seven times. But I probably never got to play the majors that I should have played. And looking back, I probably wish I'd done so.
1: Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with tennis channel plus to be there when it happens.
0: Hmm. Well, that's, that's very interesting uh, how that all worked.
2: Uh, it's a uh, very different to what do you have today? Believe me.
0: Yeah, no, indeed. And I, I, you know, that, uh, brought up in my mind i'm curious do you have any idea when they started the uh futures and challengers uh tour did they have any sort of um similar tournaments to to that at all um well
2: no yeah they really didn't because you didn't you sort of didn't need them right you had smaller tournaments and bigger tournaments and obviously wimbledon was one of the bigger tournaments but Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't the same way you didn't even You didn't need qualifiers for professionals in those days because A, there weren't that many playing and B, uh, there just wasn't the money around. This has all come, obviously, because of the money that's come into the game. And to to actually just point that out, and I always think this this is interesting when I tell people they they seem to be quite surprised. The last year I played in Worldwide, I think, was 1976. Mm. Uh, and I won a round at Wimbledon that year in the singles. I lost to Jimmy Carter in the second round. I think I won two rounds in the doubles, and I got handed a check for $1,200. Mm. Uh, if you if you went around this year at Wimbledon, just cut me up next week. If you were in a round, <laughs> went around in the singles and went two rounds in the doubles, I think you're probably going to get a check for about 80000 <laughs> <Right. laughs> <laughs> And I know money translates differently, but it, we the money just wasn't there when I was playing, and that's the big difference.
0: Huh, yeah. It's still tough, though, for the lower-ranked players uh, of today, but like you said, there were far less players back when you were playing. It was,
2: yeah, it was impossible back then. It really was.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, curious, you mentioned Connors. Uh, if you don't mind, could you describe kind of um, what it was like to play against Jimmy Connors?
2: Yeah, Jimmy, uh, two players, I guess three players I played against, the the best players, maybe four, they were all very different, Nostalty, Vivas, Borg, and Connors. Connors was particularly interesting because... He probably played with the worst tennis, or one of the worst tennis rackets I've ever seen made. <laughs> and I, I have to be very careful saying that because I, actually I'm a Wilson professional and, <laughs> and they make in, they make incredible product right now. Okay. But he played with that Wilson T2000. I'm not sure how many of the listeners ever saw that racket, let alone play with it. Mm. But it was actually the hardest racket to play with in the world. It had a sweet spot that was the smallest sweet spot you've ever seen. The racket would shake if you missed it at all. And it was just a really tough racket to play. Now, he had the game that fitted with that because he was probably the flattest guy I've ever seen through the ball. Mm-hmm. He really didn't hit the ball with top spin or under spin. I know it's impossible to hit a ball flat. There has to be some spin on the ball. But basically, he was straight back and straight through, forehand, and backhand. And actually, managed to play with that racket and succeed with that racket. And to me, that actually marks him down as one of the greatest players of all time because mm. it was such a brutal racket to play with. I, mm. I, I can't explain how tough it was. And he actually carried on playing with that racket past. Wilson eventually told him that we will not pay you anymore to play with this racket because it was out of production. And he was still playing with it to the bitter end. Is it really quite interesting?
0: Wow, yeah, I just uh googled the racket and it it looks like it's fifty square inches or something like that. I mean, it's really yeah. it, looks it was really a
2: tough. round hoop of steel with two <laughs> steel sort of prongs attaching the handle and, and it it was just terrible and he played with it. He, play, he played he played beautifully with it. he was also, of course one of the greatest competitors of all time, uh, like a ferocious competitor mm-hmm. uh, just loved loved to play, loved to win, but just loved the whole part of competing and uh, would you trick in the book to to work you over on the court? Mm-hmm. I actually started Jimmy playing golf a little bit because I'm a big golfer, and he, I was with him in some of these very early rounds when he started to play golf, and he mm-hmm. was just the same way on the golf course. All, all of a sudden, he's running on the golf course because he's such a competitor.
0: Yeah, you hear about um, champions who are competitive at, at everything, and uh, I, I heard that about Nadal before as well, and I'm sure there's countless others. Um, but yep. um, yeah, uh, between Nastasi, Vilas, Borg, and Connors, I'm curious also, who did you match up best against, and who gave you the most trouble?
2: Well, they all gave me a lot of trouble. Unfortunately, <laughs> my record doesn't doesn't show too well against yeah. any of them. Uh, but the, uh, at the end of the day, playing Vilas on a clay court was was brutal because he hit with mm-hmm. such huge topspin. Uh, Borg the same thing although I played Borg and Connors close to three times but Hmm. with Borg it was a very interesting phenomenon because he was the first guy to really work topspin to the level that he did and Vivas of course did the same thing up to then tennis had been there was obviously topspin in the game but it was nothing like the amount of spin that those guys put on the ball and Borg actually almost semi miss hit the ball most of the time. He played with fairly tightly strong rackets. Yeah. And he gets so much spin on the ball it, it he almost had this little semi miss hit. So for me coming to the net against him was particularly difficult because mm-hmm. a lot of the times the these passing shots would right. seem to be a little high but of mm-hmm. course they dipped down very quickly after that. So that was easy, that was tough to judge. You played Connors, and I net against Connors, it would just be a clean pass. It would either be in or out. It was very clinical. Mm-hmm. But Borg, it, it was tricky. With the Stasi, he was one of the great racket handlers probably of all time. I think uh, his game would translate today, although probably most of those guys' games would too. But he was probably the biggest artist I've ever seen with a tennis racket.
0: Wow, very interesting. Great stuff. And so, uh, Stephen, what was your fondest memory as a professional on the tour?
2: Oh. Funny enough, later on in my career, I actually picked up uh, a couple of tournament titles. They weren't uh, at mm. the very top level, and I won the Irish Open nice. in the very last year before I retired. I only played seven years on a tour. I turned pro at 16, mm. and I'd already, I would already—I was already at my first teaching job at 23, so and uh, like I said before I played seven Wimbledon's in, in between. But I, after I started my first teaching job, I was in as in, uh, in Miami Beach in Florida. I, I picked up a tournament called the Florida Citrus Open, which was one mm-hmm. of the bigger one of the bigger money tournaments outside of the sort of the major events. And I won the Irish Open that year too, both the singles and the doubles. And over the years, there've been some pretty good winners of, of the Irish Open. It was always played the week after Wimbledon, mm-hmm. so they got a fairly strong draw from players that have played at Wimbledon. I think those was probably for, for singles events they were my they were my best recollections, although that Goliath cup that I won as a junior also ranked uh,
0: very high well, That's was fantastic and stephen I know you you played seven years uh, on the tour, which is uh, fairly substantial, but at the same time you did retire at uh, the age of twenty three you mentioned so do you have any regrets over uh, retiring that early
2: i I really don't know that i I could have maybe gotten a little better, there's there's no doubt about that, but my game had limitations, and I I realized, unfortunately. And although I tried to address them, it was probably, and I improved some of my weaknesses, it was probably a little bit too late to to really do a remake on a shot. Like, I could have gone to a double-handed backhand, or I could have started really making some major grip changes, and I decided that uh, I really didn't have the time to do that. So at the end of the day, no, I really don't have any regrets. Uh, It would have been nice to play another two or three years without a doubt, but I was offered a very good teaching position. I was very fortunate to get that at 23, and I've been mostly teaching ever since, and it's something I enjoy tremendously. I I love the technical aspects of the game and very much into it, and I've had a great career. You know, there was never the money around for me in those days, even if I'd moved up from 70-odd, whatever I was in, if I moved up, up 30 or 40 places, there wasn't going to be enough to make a, you know, a really good living anyway. So I'm very happy with actually the way it turned out.
0: Well, it's fantastic, Stephen, and I mean, seven years is uh, again. I mean, that's a great. Uh, I'm sure you had uh, unbelievable experiences. Uh, well, the time.
2: experience was incredible. It really was traveling just worldwide, and the people I met. I mean, it just played in so many fantastic places, made so many friends. It uh, it it really was. It was a it was a treat for seven years.
0: Fantastic, and. uh Steven, I mean these days there's a, a lot more focus on um, eating healthy and physical fitness. And I'm just curious uh, on the tour back when you played, uh, did you notice that as as well? Was it as much of a, a was, was it as prominent as it is today?
2: Well, you couldn't say it was as prominent, but uh, people were definitely very aware of it. There's actually no doubt about that. Although, of course, the running joke was the Australians drank a lot of beer in those days, so and <laughs> were still incredibly successful on the court. But you know, <laughs> what a few beers probably wouldn't harm anybody. Yeah, I, I think diet. Uh, people were careful about their diet, but they were definitely not in the physical shape that today's players are. They they've moved it into an absolutely different different level. And you see Djokovic out on the court today. I mean, it's one of the finest physical specimens, one of the finest athletes I've ever seen in any sport. Uh, and they, they weren't at that level. But in their own way at that time, yes, they did. They did work on it. And a lot of the players were extremely
0: fit. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I know that you're, uh, you know, you're born in England, and then now you reside in Toronto, um, which actually one of my teammates, a uh, former teammates from college, Irfan Shemazan and his, his brother, Adil Shemazan, they're up there as well. Um, but as far as, um, you know, the tennis players, uh, you know, you obviously, I'm sure, are a fan of Milos, and I've heard your bits on him as well as others. Uh, but who are your favorite players on the tour today,
2: I've always been a big fan of Federer's. Rogers, uh, I just love the way he plays. I don't think like anybody I've ever seen, maybe outside of the, even the stars, he played with the grace that Roger plays with. Hmm. Any person that makes the sport look easy to me is probably a pretty good uh, technical um, master of the game, and uh, Roger definitely has that ability. He just plays—he plays so beautifully. It's so much fun to watch. I've come to admire uh, Rafa over the years. Uh, Maybe not so much originally because I'm not a big play court player myself. Right. But I think what a true gentleman he is, and uh, I admire the way he attacks a game, and I admire the way he he acts as a as a human being afterwards too, which to me is a wonderful thing. And uh, Djokovic, just for his athleticism, and he also seems to be moving in a in a great direction as a person. I, I think uh, tennis is so very well served by that that group of players. I, I think uh, when we watch tennis, we should be proud of proud of those three. So up-and-coming players, yeah, I like Niyosh a lot. Uh, I think he's missing maybe just one or two small parts, but I really don't think he's missing that much. And he could strike, even at Wimbledon this year, could have a very good Wimbledon. Now he's stuck in Djokovic's uh, quarter, which is going to be tough for him. But I think he still. I think he may have a major in him. Uh, he's a very hard-working young man. He attacks the right way, the game the right way. He's very, very professional. I'm uh, also kind of impressed with Dominique Seam. I, I mm-hmm. think Thiem may be a player to look, look out for going forwards as well.
0: Definitely yes. Milos had a very close match with Andy. Uh, I think a few days ago, where he had a volley to go up four um, one. Might have just been one break. Yeah, but... he
2: did. And uh, funny enough, that was a Queens Club, which is my old club in London. So it always <laughs> gets me. Uh, it gets me thinking of the good old bad old days when I see the the clubhouse, which really hasn't changed very much. Hmm. But that match was. Uh, was good for me, in many ways. Because just to to play close with Andy was good. Running into Wimbledon and to be in the final, a little bit disappointing after being up three. That he couldn't close it out. That's just one of those little things. He not quite one hundred percent there, but you know he is knocking on the door. And that was a, he was actually taking it to Andy for a good portion of that match. So mm-hmm. he played very well.
0: Indeed, he did. Um, and so, uh, I'm curious, uh, what in your view does Andy Murray uh, need to do to overtake Novak Djokovic, if possible? Wow, <laughs>
2: yeah, that might not be possible. Uh, <laughs> Andy Murray himself, I think, is uh, is a great athlete. He also covers the court very well. I think he's a great fighter. I think the one thing with the one thing that's got to be very hard for him to challenge Djokovic is that Murray always looks to me to be a little disturbed mentally on the court. Mm-hmm. He always seems to find a way to get upset about something. And while many people would say that is something that might motivate him to play better, that tries to get it, tries to get himself juiced up, to me it becomes a distraction. And I think that's got to be an issue because I think that's just human nature. I think that's that's who he is. I hear he's uh, he's a great young man off the court, uh, on the court. I'm not sure I like the way he presents himself at times. Whereupon Djokovic, who used to suffer too, a little bit from that, not quite the same way, I think has matured uh, in the way he plays and matured in the way he looks at the game from a mental perspective and is calmer and therefore takes less out of himself. And for that reason alone, uh, obviously, Barry's going to have a shot to beat him occasionally. But I think Djokovic is not only the physically maybe slightly quicker and slightly stronger player, uh, he's also mentally probably the tougher. I think he also believes he's fitter than anybody else that plays the game. And that's a wonderful chip to have uh, on your side of the table if you really think you're fitter than the guy you're playing. And I think that's what Novak thinks about everybody he plays. So that's a tough combination the physical fitness and and the mental superiority is going to be hard to beat from my perspective as long as he wants to play tennis
0: no oh, certainly and he's uh, been doing a lot of stretching and that's why he's so balanced uh and can get basically every ball uh hit on the court and um and also yeah. a great point about the uh the mental um you know, just the temper tantrums, as because Federer, obviously, when he was uh, much younger, he would also throw those temper tantrums, and he's learned to be uh, even keel. So a couple more questions for you, Stephen. Your pick on who will win Wimbledon on the male and female side.
2: Uh, well, I, I hate to go with a guy who's the odds-on favorite, but I, I kind of got to go with Novak, I guess, if you mm-hmm. ask for a single pick. I think Milos could have a huge time, but if he, if Novak lost uh, in an earlier round, uh, and it can be tough at Wimbledon the first week, the uh, courts can be green and the ball sits down, and it's a little slippery and tough to move. But if Milos could somehow find his way past Novak for whatever reason into the semi-final, I think he could have a huge tournament, But I can't go against Novak the way he's playing in the ladies side i'm a huge fan of the young spanish lady gabine muguruza
0: mm-hmm.
2: i think she has style class big big game i think the way she took it to serena just recently uh and just actually took her on at her own game uh, in the french uh, where she uh, she outserved her and out hit her i've been i've been touting this young lady for two years she's got the softer side of the women's draw as a number two seed at the bottom Serena's got a few tougher players I think earlier on so uh, even though Serena normally would be the favorite and my favorite probably to win any event she plays in I'm actually going to go straight out with Garbine Muguruza and say I think she's going to win Wimbledon this year uh, to a French title.
0: Very reasonable picks, uh, Stephen. And I, I'm also curious um, if you could just briefly sum up uh, how you got into uh, commentating. Because I know you commentated for uh, the Olympics t- in 2012, and you also do that, uh, you know, for TSN and ISR Radio.
2: so oh. Uh, well, the, the, the gig for the Olympics just came out of, out of the blue, literally. I think they came up short at the last minute uh, with about three or four weeks to go. And a member of my club actually was talking to one of the producers for the Olympic consortium up here in Canada. and said, look, we've got somebody right here at the club who has the experience played at Wimbledon many times. And because the Olympics were held at Wimbledon last year, it seemed to be a good, uh, seemed to be a good fit so uh got the job originally I was supposed to do just the Canadian content for the first you know however long the Canadian players lasted and then after uh, unfortunately Mirosh uh, had gone down they asked me to carry on and I actually did the event right through to the final I did the semi-final of the men's and the ladies singles too I enjoyed it tremendously uh, didn't really follow up on it probably the way I should uh, not that I thought anything else would come of it necessarily but I probably should have pressed that advantage home a little bit um, but just for the last year or so, decided I'd like to get back and, and maybe give that another shot if I could. So ISR Radio suddenly came up and started doing a weekly show with them with a tennis panel. And now really I'm their go-to guy for tennis. And I'm on there most weeks. So slowly, step by step, you know how it is. got to practice and you've got to work at it, right?
0: Exactly, Stephen. Uh, Wonderful stuff. And so uh, one uh, question that we like to ask all our guests at the end of an interview is, what one piece of advice would you tell our audience uh, to help them improve their tennis games?
2: I think uh, there's two things. I think, first of all, uh, most people are way too much interested in the outcome and not interested enough in the preparation they make on the tennis court. And it's all cause and effect. And I think if if you want to get a good outcome, you want to win matches, Uh, you've got to work on preparation. I think tennis is 90% what you do before you hit the ball. So that would be the the actual number one thing. The second thing is that most people are not aware of the angle of their tennis racket in their preparation or at impact. And in the days that I played, as I mentioned earlier on with a continental grip, you're very aware of it because you didn't have have grip change. So you're very, uh, very aware of where the face of the racket is at all times. And I think that's uh, something that most amateur players need to work on very hard, but primarily probably preparation, what you do before you hit the ball, rather than worrying about the result and where the ball's going and whether you're going to win the point.
0: Fantastic advice, Stephen, in particular the racket angle. I have not heard that advice yet in asking that question to my interviewees. Um, So, Stephen, where can our audience uh, find and follow you?
2: Okay, well, another one place always on Twitter, which is Warboys on Tennis. That's my Twitter account and uh, for anybody who ever wanted to get in contact, uh they can catch me at Warboys on tennis at gmail dot com or at the Toronto Cricket Club in Toronto, Canada.
0: Wonderful, Stephen. Well, I really appreciate you taking your time to talk to me. I wish you all the best. um you know, thanks again, and uh you take care.
2: Thank you very much. Stay well. Bye.
0: You too. Bye, Steven. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed my interview with Steven. And uh, I would really appreciate it if you guys would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast, um, whether that's on iTunes or any other podcast app that you use to listen to the show. I'm also, uh, you know, excited to once again be part of the media for the City Open Tennis Tournament here in D.C., And uh, that's going to be about a week and a half-ish from when this episode is published. And uh, I'm going to be at the press conferences. I'm going to be interviewing players and uh, reporting on the matches. And I also am going to try to release a podcast episode or two live from the city open. Uh, So I think that would be pretty cool. So I'm going to try to uh, contact one of my media friends to have uh, him do a show with me. A show or two, rather. And uh, I always like to end the show with a quote. And today's quote is from Marcus Garvey. And Mr. Garvey says, A people without the knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I thought that quote was quite appropriate given the interview with Steve and how we talked about tennis and, uh, you know, some of the great champions of the past generation and uh, how tennis is really such a neat game with a rich history that uh, hopefully will live on for many, many, many more years and will thrive. Um, So thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate you guys supporting the show and sending in emails. And uh, I really enjoy corresponding with you guys. So please don't hesitate to shoot me an email at mirban at tennisfiles.com. So that's M-E-H-R-B-A-N at TennisFiles.com. Uh, looking forward to having you guys tune in on the next show, the Tennis Files podcast. Until then, take care, guys.
1: Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.